You're listening to audio from Mercy's Door Community Church in Mascouda, Illinois. If you'd like to get more information about Mercy's Door, we'd love for you to connect with us on Facebook or check us out at mercysdoor.org. I don't know if I've like ever explicitly said it, and so I am just, if I have, forgive me, but uh, these symbols here, the four symbols above our graphic for the Gospel of John, represent the work that the pastors did at the beginning of this sermon series to break down the book of John as we preach it chronologically into four parts. So we first preached, you see it like in the announcement, like when it's, we're listening to that cool guy speak to us, he says like, uh, it starts with in the beginning, and we did like a long, slow walk through the introduction to the gospel account of John, and we called that the mini-series of in the beginning, and, and walked through that. And then we are wrapping up, right, or then we did uh, the um, signs of the Savior, which was that next one, and this was like the public ministry of Jesus, where uh, we kind of worked through all the stuff that he did in public with his signs and his miracles, his healings, and all of that, the ways that he was showing the world who he was and validating and certifying who he claimed to be. And now we're moving into this kind of third uh, portion of this gospel text where we called it the teachings of a good shepherd, where Jesus is starting to retreat now at the end of his earthly ministry from the public eye and to spend some time simply intimately with his inner 12. And that's going to start really in chapter 13 when we see the farewell discourse in the upper room on down through the final portion where we're, what we call a new life, where we see the passion account where Jesus is crucified and resurrected, right? And so we are in this weird transition period between 12 and 13, where he's still kind of public. He hasn't gone into uh, Jerusalem yet in his triumphal entry, but he, it says that he no longer walked around openly among the Jews as ra- they were kind of raging against him and looking for every opportunity to put him down. And so uh, we are kind of in that transition chapter, and then in 13, he'll purely be alone with his disciples, and it's kind of the direction we're moving with that. I just thought, like, if I hadn't shared that with you yet, maybe you can follow with me the rest of the way as we do that. So uh, looking at our text this morning, you guys remember we spent the last two weeks looking at the resurrection account of Lazarus, and uh, it was it was incredible and loud and public miracle. There was a dead man, dead for four days, raised into new life by the voice of Jesus as he calls him out of the tomb. And this is happening here sometime later. He then flees because the Jews, he says that he no longer walked openly among the Jews because they wanted to kill him. The Passover is at hand. We're six days before the Passover, it says here in this text. And Jesus, therefore, comes to Bethany, which is the town where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. That's verse 1, verse 2. So they gave dinner for him there. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at table. And when you read that, I mean, our, our, our passage this morning, as I'm going to kind of focus in, I'm going to focus on what John focuses on, and this is mostly an account of Mary. And so we're going to talk a lot about how Mary responds in this dinner this, this morning. But as a kind of passing throwaway sentence, we read there in sentence number two, they gave dinner for him there, Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at table. Like dead Lazarus, like four days in the tomb Lazarus, Jesus calls out, says, Lazarus, come out, reclining with him at table in this dinner here. And in preparing the sermon this morning, um, 
for this morning, I was just talking to the Lord about times that you maybe have brushed up against death. You ever had a near-death experience? So maybe I'm talking bodily first. But you ever had like a near-death experience, and then after the near-death experience, going and doing normal things feels super weird? Like, I almost died, and now I'm playing Nintendo, right? And that just feels weird. Or I, I just almost died, and now I'm, like, eating a sandwich. I remember, like, almost drowning on the beach one day when I was, like, 10 years old, and then, like, didn't drown. And then we're eating, like, sandy sandwiches, you know, like, on a picnic blanket, right? It's, it's, it's kind of weird to make the transition from, like, brushing up against death to just normal everyday life. And similarly, when you experience the near death, or even worse, the, the true death of a loved one, something weird after the, like, how do I go and just resume as normal in certain things once I've brushed up against death, or once I've smelled the stench of death, or once I've tasted death or come near to death? Well, here we see Lazarus who actually died. He himself died and stayed dead for four days until one day his eyes opened, reawoken by the voice of his Savior, hit with the stench, the odor of his own death. Stones rolled away, and he walks out, and here sometime later, he's reclining at table with Jesus. This morning, I wanted to talk to you guys a little bit about the ways in which this kind of applies to you before we start looking at Mary. You know, when I was just noting the, the, the various ages in the room, try to follow with me, I was 11 years old when I was first exposed to a certain type of moral impropriety. It's on a school computer. They had just brought school computers into my school district, very first time, and all the kids were being taught how to conduct an internet search on Netscape Navigator. And they said, this is a search bar. Come on, and, like, this is a search bar, and kind of anything you type in here, here's the kind of mechanics that you use to type them in, and then you're going to get results that are useful for researching school papers and things like that. And so everyone, think of something, type it in, see what happens. I can't think of anything to type in, and in my innocence, XXX, enter. And I am exposed to my very first internet search to a whole world that I was not even aware, aware existed computer. Found my way into that. Quick found my way out of that. Went home. Buried that. Went back to school next week. We had computer lab. XXX enter. This time not an accident. This time curiosity gave way to a taste. Then you develop a taste for that and at 11 years old it gets a grip on you. That carried with me all the way into my adulthood. All the way into my adulthood. Till one day I meet the Lord. He starts to radically reorient everything in my life. I'm learning at like breakneck speed what it even means to be his, what it is that he calls a man to be. I, I'm starting to take interest in one of his daughters, one of the, my, my, my now wife, and learning for the first time what he even calls a man to be when it comes to loving a wife and all of that. And I'm just trying to just radically slay sin, chase after him, and love people the way that he wants me to love people, and just leave things in the past, right? That's dead Adam, that's old Adam, right? And one day I'm hanging out with my, with my then girlfriend, and she just says casually, 
she probably had a motive. I could never marry somebody who and says and, 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 and puts her finger on the sin of my past. And of course, in my moment, in my flesh, I say to myself, well, it's really good that I'm somebody who would never do that. Because I'd already decided I was a guy who would never do that. That was something that that guy would do, but I, I wasn't ever going to do that. And so in the, uh, inner, in the inner life between me and Jesus, Adam in the darkness, within his own soul, warring against sin with his Lord, seeking to put it to death, but not willing to bring it into the open, to bring it truly into the light, to make it known to others that we might together really see it put to death in the way that he calls us to. Just going to leave it behind. And it stayed that way until one day my wife, 11 years ago, is sick in the hospital, pregnant with our child for over a week. And I'm working 12-hour days at a hospital trying to arrange childcare for our other child. And somehow, I find myself wandering back to this filthy cistern. And I catch myself. I'm there. And I say, your wife, your beloved wife, is sick in the hospital, pregnant with your child. And this is where you're running for comfort? And I bury it down. In my head, all I can hear are these words, I could never marry a man who. And now to bring this into the light, we're talking about potentially costing me my family, right? But the Holy Spirit being the kind Holy Spirit that he is, convicts and convicts and he brings to the light that which I did not want to bring into the light. And I turn to my wife one night, I wake her up and I say, hey, we need to talk. And I give it to her. And the Holy Spirit takes up this loud resonance in my wife in that moment to do what I would have thought was impossible, for her to look upon me with the eyes of my Lord and for her to be the care of my Lord, to in that moment care more about her brother in Christ's soul than about her wounds and to love me and to take compassion upon me and to draw from me all those things that I so wanted to leave buried in the past, but to put them out and to say to me, what you need to do is bring these before your Lord for forgiveness before you would think that you need my forgiveness. I can't give you the freedom that you're looking for here. He can. And then doing the long walk with me to walk through that. We're talking about things that like, had it happened now, it would disqualify me from standing up here. Right? Like we're talking about real stuff. We're talking about the brush, brushing up with death at the spiritual level, right? Certainly what I was doing in that moment as I confessed to my wife this moral impropriety was, I felt what I was doing was I was transferring death from its long residence in me into the open air that it might kill this too. That was my great fear. And instead, something entirely different happened, right? Jesus, by taking something dead and drawing it into the light, brought new life into what I thought could only lead to yet more death. And now I'm standing up here in front of a pulpit on a Sunday morning in front of you guys talking about this openly, and some of y'all have like, not ever seen that done, maybe. Like, maybe this is like, like one step further and being open from the pulpit than you're maybe used to. But here's what I know. Here's what I know. 
If taking up this spot, what I'm used to, is that standing up here, standing behind here, I've met some dudes who this is the one place or this is the one role, if you wear the collar, where you need to stay in hiding, where you have to deal with stuff privately or there's a very short list of people who can really know the stuff that you battle or the stuff that you're up against, right? And what I know is that if this job requires me to be in hiding, then this is the last job that I need. And this is the, this is the last job that I need, right? So why have I done this? On what, on what basis did I bring this up this morning from this text? Try to track it. On what basis can I stand up here after saying such things to you guys and then, at the beginning, and then stay up here and preach the gospel to you and preach the rest of this text to you and feign to have any, any qualities whatsoever that make me able to proclaim these things to you. On what basis, thinking about the, how weird it is after you nearly drown to go sit on a picnic blanket and eat a sandy sandwich and act like all is normal, you know how weird it was the first time after everything was brought in the light that my, when my wife leaned in for a kiss? Like, what? What? Here, the first time after the resurrection from the dead, He's reclining at a table with Jesus. It's super weird, right? Because it's like you're, it's all discombobulating. This, this mixture of the stench of death and the light of life. And yet this messy injection of new life into just awful sin and death in this world is the whole testimony of the account of John. And this particular interaction really did a number on me to remind me where my life has always come from and where I need to be reminding you to find it. Let's go to the text and get our eyes off of Adam for a minute. Six days before the Passover, Jesus comes to Bethany where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. And so they gave dinner for him there. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at table. So you got this picture of Jesus at the table, Lazarus at the table. They're reclining together. It says, Martha is serving. We don't know exactly where this is. We know that it's in Bethany. It's possibly in the home of Simon the leper. It's possibly at Martha's house, depending on how you interpret the, uh, this account as it lines up with the account of Mark. And then Mary, the third sister, or the other sister, uh, therefore takes a pound of expensive ointment that is made from pure nard, and she anoints the feet of Jesus and wipes his feet with her hair so that the house is filled with the fragrance of the perfume. So we see Lazarus first, the one who tasted death, brought back to life, sitting at this table with Jesus. How is he responding in this after-death interaction with Jesus? He's reclining. He's reclining. Then we see Martha. How is she responding? Lazarus' sister, Mary and Martha, are the ones that sent word to Jesus and said, our brother is sick. We need you. He shows up. He's already dead. They go out. They weep with him. They take him to the tomb, and they see this miracle with their own eyes as he resurrects their brother from the dead. So Martha gets the opportunity to have this dinner with him. How does she respond? Well, she's serving. And then we see Mary and we see her response is different from Lazarus and Martha, and it looks like this. Mary takes this pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard, and she anoints the feet of Jesus and wipes his feet with her hair so that the house is filled with the fragrance of the perfume. Mary anoints him. And so you see these three different responses, and all of them are beautiful. 
And I want to use them as an illustration this morning to invite you guys what to do when you come into the presence of Jesus in the light after you have brushed up against death, after you have come into contact with death, after you have smelled the stench of death, after you've gotten to the point where you feel like this thing cannot be resurrected, this thing is past saving, this thing is outside the reach of Jesus, and now I'm in his presence and I have seen his goodness. How do I respond? Lazarus reclines. He just wants to chill and hang with Jesus. He's, he wants to eat with him. He wants to just be with him. He wants to be in his presence and just enjoy him. And for some of y'all, you've got to respond like Lazarus. Like you want to jump right to serving or right to pouring something out or whatever. But for you, maybe it just means stopping and sitting and being with him. Just being with him. Like there's nothing of note that Lazarus does in this account to include in the chapter. And he's the one that got raised from the dead. He's just with him. And for a lot of us, and I'll I'll admit for me, that's the hardest way for me to worship Jesus. To just be with him. I want to do for him way before I just want to be with him. I want to pour something out for him, something of worth, sacrifice for him in some way, way before I'll be comfortable just being with him. And I know the type. And if we've lived life long enough, there's people in my mind right now who I know are like me in that way. I want to busy myself in response to Jesus, but bringing myself to sit down and just be with him, that's harder. As a pastor, it can be especially hard. Every time you open the Bible, it feels like you're thinking in terms of the next sermon or, oh, here's a good illustration for the people or some, some way that I can use this to serve God. But just sitting with the Bible open, just to hear from him and be with him, to dwell with him, harder for some folks. Lazarus just reclined. Martha served. It could have been at her house. It might not have been at her house. But she was bringing the food to the table. She was was making sure the wine glasses stayed filled, right? Like, Like Martha wanted to serve those at the table, not just Jesus, but those who he loved. And this is the way that we are to respond to Jesus. And this is, what, this is why we call everybody into service every single week. We say, listen, once you have received this death-to-life type of service from Jesus, the natural response is that every last one of us would respond in service, that we would then offer our hands to him. How can we just love you and love who you love? And that's why I'm up here at all. And that's why Brett's up here. And that's why you guys have people over in the classrooms and you've got folks at the table over here and and all the great stories that we hear of the way that you guys are serving one another in gospel community. Ideally, these things are not to earn anything from God, but they're in response to what he's done for you that you would just love him and love who he loves. But these are mere footnotes in comparison to what we see from Mary. Mary, therefore, takes a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard. It's called spike nard. It's gotten, they get it from a far east region. It's very pricey, very rare, very aromatic and fragrant oil. And she cracks it open and she anoints the feet of Jesus and she wipes his feet with her hair such that the whole house is filled with the fragrance of the perfume. And it's super important when I read these details to you or when you're reading your Bible that you remember that every sentence is in there because it stood out to the inspired writer. John took note that the whole house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. That's not a passing detail. In fact, if you compare this account to the account of Mark, 
I don't want to go there because I haven't left myself enough time because I went up here and like bared my soul for 20 minutes. But like, but no, I, I want you guys to know that some people feel like the account in Mark and the account in John are two different accounts, that, that possibly there were two dinners, two anointings. Some people feel like the, the both accounts tell of the same happening. I'm in the camp that believes it was the same happening, and I feel like I could convince you if we had lunch. But uh, it's not super important for the sake of this uh, sermon, except that I'm going to steal one detail from Mark and apply it to this passage, and if that violates you in some way, just know it happened, just maybe not on that day. But what the offering that Mary made to Jesus here, this, this aroma that filled the whole house, in Mark it talks about how she poured it out on his head, not just on the feet, that at least someone, probably Mary, poured out this oil on his head and his feet, and that, the, um, and that Jesus said, it is a beautiful thing that she has done for me in Mark. That's not documented here. He defends her, but those are not the words that John remembers. He remembers uh, something else that he says, but just the same. This offering of worship, whether in this one or not, what we learn is that Jesus loved it, is the takeaway I was trying to get to, roundabout way. Is that the way that Mary worshiped Jesus here was delightful to Jesus. Not just delightful to Jesus, but it was delightful to John, and that he even recalled the way that this perfume just filled the whole house. Filled the whole house. She takes a pound of this stuff, and she cracks it open, and she pours it out on his feet, and she worships him. And what she's doing here is she's loving him. And this is the other piece that, like, when I first wrote the sermon, it was, you know, main point number one was, like, are you loving Jesus because you love Jesus, or are you loving and worshiping Jesus on account of what you desire to get from him? And we'll talk about that instead as a subnote to this sermon. Because what we see from Mary here is simply that she loves Jesus. This is a gesture of love. I'm going to go and get the most valuable thing that I have, and I'm going to pour it out on you, because you brought Lazarus back from the dead. And no one else has ever done something like that for me. And I don't know anybody else who can do something like that. You have loved me, Jesus, in a way that no one else has ever loved me. And I want to love you with the highest gesture of love that I can offer to you. I'm going to take the most valuable thing I have and crack it out and pour it out over you on your feet. And with my very hair, I am going to wipe your feet. Like this is the ultimate humble submission act of low service to just say you are so high, so much higher than me. But Judas Iscariot says to her, uh, he's one of the disciples who was about to betray him, it says, verse 5, why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief and having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. And so we gather from this comment, the same comment is made in the Mark account, I think it's further evidence that this is the same thing, but, the, uh, but we learn that this ointment was worth 300 denarii. We know that a denarius is a day's wage in the ancient world, so we're talking about 300 days pay. We're talking about a year's worth of salary represented in this flask, and it's just been cracked out and poured over Jesus. And while it's happening, uh, uh, Judas looks upon what's happening, and he starts freaking out. He tries to stop this and say, hold up. Is this the best use of the nard? I mean, this is worth 300 denarius after all. If we sold it, 
we could give it to the poor. And of course, he's exposed in this passage as being a thief. He was of the 12 disciples, the one who was responsible for the group money bag. And so when they would take offerings or, or end up with money of any, he was responsible for caring for that. So that he would help himself to money from that bag regularly. And so what he sees is a missed opportunity that if this money had been appropriated in some other way of service, some way that glorifies God, it would, it would have benefited him in a greater way than to be wasted on the feet of Jesus. In fact, in Mark, the people essentially say, what a waste. Why was it wasted in this way? Why was it wasted in this way? At this point in the gospel, if you read all of the synoptic gospel accounts, you'll know that Jesus has very clearly articulated at least four times before this interaction that he's on his way to a cross, that he's intending to die. And this creates a crisis of faith for Judas, who is counting on Jesus to be his earthly king, to be the one who eradicates the Romans and who brings Israel into prosperity and who will maybe remember him on the day that he comes into his earthly throne and will give him a position of honor within the royal court. These are the hopes of those who are looking to Jesus to be an earthly Messiah. I'm drawing near to power for my benefit. But Jesus, at this point in his ministry, leaving no doubt that he had come to die, Judas is conflicted, and he says, I need to get off of this boat before it's too late. I've hedged all of my bets on one who's willing himself to die here. I got to get off, which means every dollar wasted on this guy hurts me and my purposes at this point. And this is where I need to circle back to my question, to my point to y'all. Why are you worshiping Jesus? Why are you following him? On what basis are you following him? What are you looking for? What are you looking to? Because Judas was one of the 12. He was there with Peter and the rest in these high moments. He was there in the room in this intimate dinner. But he was there for a different reason, wasn't he, than Mary was. Very different reason. And likewise, if you look out in any church, not church building, any church, you talk to people who say, yeah, I'm a Christian. Yeah, I, I, I follow Jesus. Ask them why. And you're going to get an array of different answers. Ask them about the manner of their worship. And you're going to get a lot of different answers. You'll find that sometimes you'll see somebody objecting to the way in which Jesus is being worshipped, not because it somehow withholds some glory from him or is unbefitting of his worth, but because it seems like a waste. There's a more pragmatic way we could have done that. There's a way that could have benefited me and that person. That's far too costly upon yourself. Worship that is a cheap worship that almost never costs you anything, but almost always promises you gain. Somehow, my ministries are oriented around loving people who can somehow serve me back. But once there's not a return on this form of worship, I'm out of there. 
you are not above these types of micro-calculations in the decisions that you make as you seek to follow Jesus, but I tell you that Jesus spits this form of worship out. It's not true worship. Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said, he said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief and having charge of the money bag he used to help himself to what was put into it. And Jesus says to him, leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. I contend that the phrase so that she may keep it is the lesser of two possible translations of the Greek there. The other option for there is, that, is not that um, so that she may keep it, but that she intended to keep it. It's a future form. So either so that she may keep it for the future or that she had intended to keep it for the future. And I think it lines up better with what he says in Mark when he says that she is anointing me, allow her to anoint me beforehand for burial is what he says there. And so he's certainly not encouraging her to stop and hold on to that oil for later. He's delighting in the way that she's anointing it right now as the fragrance fills the house. And he says, leave her alone, for she intended to keep it for the day of my burial. The poor you always have with you, but you don't always have me. So Jesus is saying, I'm right here. I'm right now. I'm right in front of her. This is the best use of this oil right now, that she would pour it out on me while she still can. And Mark saying, anointing me beforehand for burial. And I wonder how seen she felt, how, how seen she felt in that moment by Jesus, that he gets into her head and tells everybody about her intentions for this oil. When he says, leave her alone, she intended to hold on to this for my burial, or in Mark, Leave her alone, for she's anointed me beforehand for burial. He's acknowledging that she knows that his death is imminent. And that knowing that and calculating that and feeling that and loving him, she says, I don't know when I'm going to be with you next. I don't know what the hour of your death is, but you keep saying it's going to be soon. And I don't know if I'm going to have another meal with you, but you're here now and I've got this thing. And so I, pres- I offer it to you now while I can. It's this true offering of worship that is motivated by love. She loves him. And she didn't want to miss the opportunity to offer him the most expensive things she could. If I was sitting at a table with the guy who raised my brother from the dead, And he said that he was going to die. He also prophesied in veiled terms that he would be raised again from the dead. I might just believe it. I might just believe that even though he die, yet he will live. I might just start to get a sense for this guy, this guy means it. This guy is the real, like if anyone believed before the resurrection, that he was really going to come alive again after three days, it might have been the sisters of the ones who saw it happen to Lazarus. There was something of faith in her offering. And this is kind of my, my final main point for this morning, is when we're hedging our bets on Jesus, and I want to make sure that you have clarity on this, 
when you are hedging your bets on Jesus, you're either hedging your bets on a dying man, or in, in, like Judas was, believing that if I hedge my bets on him, I'm, I'm, I'm pinning all of my hopes on one who's just going to die, and if he dies, then, then I'm out of luck, and so I need to get off the ship and go elsewhere. Or you are pidgey, you're hedging your bets on one who has victory over death and who anything that you pin to him, he can give eternal life. But how you see Jesus will determine how you worship Jesus. How you see Jesus will determine how you worship him. Do you believe that pinning your hopes on him is pinning your hopes on death? Or do you believe that it's pinning your hopes on life? On life. I know that we know the right answer to these questions. And that's why when we keep it hypothetical, sometimes it's not super helpful. That's why we do GC, by the way. So you guys can't answer back to me when I'm up here, right? But what are you withholding from Jesus? Let it speak to you. But don't answer too quickly. What are you withholding from him? What are you trying to help him with? Like, what are you not sure he's going to show up for? And so you're afraid that it might stay dead or that it might die if you count on him for it. You are. There are things that you won't put before the light with Jesus because like last week, my major point, that when, when Martha contended, please don't roll that stone away, Jesus. By now there will be an odor. We don't want to bring it into the light with Jesus because we're certain like I was 11 years ago. If we cast light on this thing, it's just going to mean more death. So keep it over here. Keep it from Jesus. Don't take it to Jesus. It's outside his reach. I'll handle it myself. And so it stays dead. This woman poured out everything on him, knowing he was going to his burial out of pure love and hope that he can make dead things alive again because she'd seen it with her own eyes in church. That's my invitation to you this morning, that you would come out of hiding, that you would take those things that you would withhold from Jesus, that you would take that fear that dead things stay dead and remember that Jesus said not true. In me, dead things can have life again and that you'd bring them to him, that you'd bring them into the light, that you'd make them known, that you'd take real risk, that you'd make them known to one another, that those who have seen dead things come to life can speak that truth over you and encourage you to walk in the light with him. Let's pray to that end now.